0: Hello, I'm Marcus Pipworth, and welcome to the Ministry of Change podcast. I know it's been quite a while since I uploaded anything. Um, I've been focused on uh, some other things. I've been really deep diving into storytelling, and so I had to put the podcast on hold while I really delved deep into that, and it's been a beautiful process, and I think it's going to enrich this as well. And uh, I guess in that context it'd be good to start off with this little story which I think frames the next few at least podcasts that I'm going to upload. And it's a story about two Japanese frogs. There's a Japanese frog from Osaka. Osaka frog. And he lives in a beautiful pond in Osaka. And there's Koyoto Frog, who lives in a beautiful pond in Koyoto. Osaka Frog sits in his pond and he thinks, This is a beautiful pond, but I've heard that the ponds in Koyoto are even more beautiful than this. And Koyoto Frog was sitting in his pond in Koyoto and he said, This pond is definitely beautiful, but I hear that the ponds in Osaka are perhaps even more beautiful. Neither frog knew each other, but it just so happened that on the exact same day, at the exact same time, both decided to leave their ponds and set out for the other's city to see the ponds. And so they hopped across the land, and it just so happened that equidistant between the two ponds was a big mountain. Both the Saka frog and Koyoto frog hopped up the mountain And at the summit, they met. Who are you and where are you going? Said Osaka Frog. I am Kyoto Frog, and I am going to see the ponds of Osaka. Who are you and where are you going? I am Osaka Frog, and I am going to see the ponds of Kyoto. Ah, said Kyoto Frog. Well, we are so high up on this mountain. If we were just a little bit higher, we would be able to gaze out and see each other's ponds and decide from here whether to make the rest of the journey. If I stand up on my hind legs and you stand up on your hind legs and we both rest our little front legs on each other's shoulders, then we will be able to stare out and see. Good idea, said Osaka Frog. And so both frogs raised up on their hind legs and balanced on each other's shoulders with their front legs. And they gazed out and looked at each other's ponds. But the frogs forgot one thing. Frogs' eyes are on the top of their head. And so when they stood and looked out, they were in fact not gazing at each other's ponds but at their own pond. Koyoto frog said, well the ponds of Osaka look exactly like the pond in Koyoto, why would I bother making the rest of the journey? And Osaka frog looked out and he too said, well the ponds of Koyoto look exactly the same as the ponds of Osaka, why would I bother making the rest of the journey? And so they both lowered themselves back down They bid each other farewell and they hopped back down the mountain Osaka frog back to Osaka pond and Koyoto frog back to Koyoto pond. And so when, when I was thinking about this story, I thought about this sort of effort that we sometimes go to to raise ourselves out of a certain situation, a difficult situation we're to find a new path in life, but then how often we, when we get there, we end up looking back to the same place that we came from, not realizing that. And so I thought on this exploration into what it means to be human and how to navigate the difficult bits of life, I thought I'm gonna try and find some people which I haven't really spoken to before, And I thought, who better to find than people who have dedicated their lives to answering those questions about what it means to be here. And I thought the best place to find them seems to be in places of spirituality. So I've been going to various temples and uh, communities and to speak to religious leaders uh, or spiritual leaders, people who have dedicated their lives to a spiritual path of understanding what it means to be human. And I thought we could get some really great perspectives on that. So this conversation, the first in this series is with Radha Mohan Das, who is a former Hare Krishna monk and a practicing Hare Krishna devotee. And I went to the Bhaktivedanta Hare Krishna temple uh, just outside Watford to have this conversation with him. And, uh, and to follow, there are also going to be some conversations with uh, Lama Yeshi from the Samaling Tibetan Monastery in Scotland, uh, and, and also Annie Lamo, who's a monk there, uh, and various other people. And I'm quite excited to bring it, and then obviously I'll bring more different things, and there's going to be a few stories and stuff along the way. So here you go. Here is my conversation with... Rather Mohan Das.
1: My name is Radha Mohan Das, but if you want to remember he is Richard, then that's also fine. I am a Communications Secretary at, here at Antamana, Krishna Temple near Watford. I've been here for about 25, 26-ish years. I also do a lot of drama and I also do a lot of pet local public relations and publications and things like that and interfaith. So I'm quite active actually. And um, yeah, so I was um, a monk here at Bhaktadantamana for about the first 15 years um, of my experience here and then more recently I've been married. So I'm a married man now, living basically the outskirts of Watford, but essentially, um, yes, I'm kind of more or less here every day, as is my wife. How does your
0: life differ now, as a married
1: man, from when you were a monk? Okay, I think that that's a good question. I think it's quite fundamental as well to the you know the Harry Krishna lifestyle, because obviously you have, it, you have the monastic experience, where people you know people who wear the the orange robes, a sign of celibacy and renunciation would live in the temple environment, of course, and therefore it's a lot easier, and it's indeed expected of them, to have what we call better sadhana. Sadhana means you know, like more time to meditate, more time to read, and particularly to get up early in the morning to do meditation and take part in the hymns, the prayers. Obviously, those things are open to everybody, but I think when one is married, there's more distractions, let's say, obviously. There's more yeah. distractions. And one of the benefits uh, of being um, a monk um, of any type, of any denomination, is that you, you, you just concentrate on your sadhana. Whereas as a married man, obviously you've got to put fit your sadhana in and around all the other responsibilities that come with married life, whether it's paying bills, whether it's taking the wife to work, whether it's going to the doctors, you know, whatever it might be. So I transform from that type of monastic experience to basically what I do now and frankly for me it wasn't all that difficult to, to because I think that in the last five years of my monkhood I was going for the gradual transformation anyway where I was realizing I needed to get a balance in my spiritual life between the between the practical let's say and the responsible and and the sadhana or the, you know, the straightforward spiritual practice um that said also because I'm working here essentially Kind of almost like a volunteer, um, but I do get a stipend so I can, can pay my bills. So it's not that I've changed my faith or the intensity of the, of the practice of that faith. Frankly, it's been a relatively smooth ride. I wouldn't recommend that someone would go from a Hare Krishna monastic experience, spending time in the ashrams of India or wherever, and then suddenly getting a job in the city or you know, working you know in London Tube Station or, or yeah. something like that. I mean, some people obviously do those things, but it's not something that I could have done or would have would have wanted to be able to do. For me, the I remember saying this to one of my seniors at the time of my transformation, that I've got to be able to justify in my heart and mind and soul the you know, fifteen years as fifteen-ish well, years as a monk yeah I can't just it's got to connect what I'm doing, whether I'm married or not. I've got to justify that and, and say so I've been okay, I've been spiritually trained in my youth from the age of about twenty one. and I don't really know anything else. and I when I joined the ashram, joined the monastery, I meant it. What's that mean? What I mean by that is that I really was ready for it. I really wanted to live spiritual life. It was very, very you know in, in an intense way. It was very important to me because it rounded off and it and and it connected with my all my questions about life and my existence and i came to the conclusion that the only way forward was was to live spiritual life full-time you know if for want of a better word um because what else can you do what what is the purpose of my existence if it's not spiritual i came to that conclusion in my early 20s before that yes i may have parted like everybody else but yeah. by the age of about 21 I think what happened was I was ready for, for spiritual life Then I felt that I'd done all I could to try and enjoy these senses, trying to you know enjoy externally if you know what I mean and it didn't work yeah. and it doesn't work for anyone really.
0: No, well, it seems like you found out a lot earlier than most
1: people. I think I. It seems like that. i had another I, decade
0: at least on yeah, my a decade. life of trying to do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. I, I'm not sure how old you are, but in your 30s. I'm 33. 33. Right? I'm 49 now, so am getting old now. <laughs> I guess that's age is relative, obviously. But I, I guess so. But I would say, you know, that I, I suppose you could say, you know, quote unquote, spiritually matured, let's say, relatively early. Um, however, it's not that I would necessarily recommend that for everyone. For most people, like you said, it's more of a gradual process. And you know, in an in Indian tradition itself, for which the Hare Krishna tradition is part, Hinduism, um, you know, it, it, people would get married. They'll go for the for the natural process. You know, the training, student life, then get married and, and have children, and then the spiritual aspect of it, like the increased Sadhana would really increase when the children had grown up and left home. And rather than living as a retired couple, playing bowls or just, I don't know, just going on walks or, or whatever, going to the pub, um, the idea is that in, in Vedic civilization, the elderly couple would then start to go to places of pilgrimage. And, and then the son would even become monks, males especially, uh, would become monks and shave their head. Whereas I think with the, um, I suppose you could say it exists in other traditions, but it's certainly in this one where you can become a monk quite early. But the transformation from being a young monk and then realizing, oh, actually, I've got to get married anyway, is a challenging one. But for, personally, for me, I was very fortunate because I'm still here. Yeah. As I'm, you know, In other words, this community I'm part of is very conducive, I think, for all kinds of people, married and non-married, monastic and otherwise. So in that sense, I guess it's been part of a, I guess, a bit of a divine path for me. We, we, obviously, any path has its pebbles and has its um, has its uh, troughs yeah. or whatever, and ups and downs, but that's life. And that would be the case anyway, in, in regardless of what you do.
0: That's good. I yeah. just you, you brought up quite a few good... Points which I want to go, I'd actually quite like to dig into around um spiritual life. I mean, the part of this project has been exploring sort of things like mental health and how we navigate Mm -hmm. the difficult bits of life. And I think spirituality feels important in that role. Um, and so I'd like to go into that more, but I did just pick up on when you we've sort of just jumped into it, and I'm thinking there may be people listening that don't know much about the Hare Krishna movement, so no. maybe that yeah. would be a good place. I, I was to, thinking
1: that actually, you know, I mean, what, I, what I've spoken about so yeah. far has been kind of generic, you know, when I talk about a monastery life, people get the general idea, yeah. but you're absolutely right, until people really know a bit more about Hare Krishna, um, or Hinduism, if you like, um, specifically, it's difficult to go on. So, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, would you like me to summarise it in a few seconds? or I mean, <laughs> <I think laughs> summarise it, but maybe... You can give more than a few seconds, I
0: feel like it probably it needs a bit deserves more, yeah.
1: a bit more than a few seconds. Alright, okay, in terms of the tradition itself, it comes from ancient India, all the, the related scriptures like the Bhagavad Purana or the Bhagavad Gita, these things, it's, it's and, and, and I guess someone would say, well, is it Hindu? Or, I mean, from a cultural point of view, you could say, well, if Hinduism means anything that comes from India, where, you know, Shiva, Krishna and Vishnu are recognised, then you could say that it is certain, certainly part of the Hindu culture. But it's a very specific branch, let's say. Um, we particularly relate to the great saint of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who, who was born in Bengal in the 15th century. That represents our branch or our main saint or, or our lineage. And in terms of belief system, um, you could say, well, we believe in reincarnation and karma and all these things. We practice different forms of yoga, especially Bhakti yoga, which means loving devotion to, to a personal god. But we would say that the the purpose of the life is not to keep getting reincarnated again and again, but to escape from this cycle of samsara or reincarnation and go back to the kingdom of of God, to use a, a kind of a Christian term, uh, or return to Vaikuntha, or go back home, back to Godhead for where we belong. Um, there are certain practices that that you know help that, or are conducive to that. For example, vegetarianism, We're, big in the vegetarian world. Um, obviously med- chanting Hare Krishna is pretty important to us. Um, but in, okay, so I could go on and on about these things, but that's the very basics of it. You know, why get do, you, why do you chant Hare Krishna? Okay, I mean, ultimately we chant Hare Krishna, the, the, we do it on beads or we can do it with for music or even without beads, but I have beads here in my, where I keep safely my bead bag. So Hare Krishna, it's a mantra, which means like a prayer. Man means mind, and tra means to free or to release. To free the mind from trouble, and that's very important to us. But any mantra at all in Sanskrit language is not supposed to be just a normal language, you know, re- repeating mundane words. Like Coca Cola, Coca Cola, Coca Cola. You know, it, it, it's it's um, it's like a it's like a language that yeah. where which the soul can communicate with God, um, like like it, like a radio frequency of some type where one is gradually a purifying one's existence and awakening our true identity, our understanding that we are not the body, but we're the soul. That's a, It's not that we have a soul, but that's what we are. And the body is like an external vehicle. So the more we chant, we're understanding these concepts, we're becoming more detached, we're becoming um, gradually, I would say, um, gradually closer to Krishna, more love, and more love comes into our life, particularly with, with Krishna you see, who we believe to be the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Um, I could mean, we'll go into more detail, but, what I, but I also mentioned the fact that it came. this tradition came to the West, um, but uh, it was brought to the West in 1965 by Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, and you've seen images of him and pictures of him yeah. here, and he's obviously very important to us, and he presented an ancient tradition by order of his own spiritual um, master, spiritual teacher. And he went on a one way ticket on a cargo ship <clears throat> from Calcutta to New York, you know, about f- 50 odd years ago. More than that now, actually, yeah, 55 years ago, 54 years ago. I um, started preaching to the youth of America. Of course, it was the late 60s by then, so he had a receptive, yeah. fashionable audience. And, and also even the Beatles, particularly George Harrison of course, helped a lot helped some of the early American Hare Krishna devotees cut records and he donated back down to Manor in the, you know, in the early 70s so this was called the Hare Krishna explosion it, people were ready for it people were fed up of Vietnam or the Space Race or, or the Cold War and, and, and there was CND marches back in the 60s and people wanted answers And there was a large youth population, the baby boomers had become, had reached their 20s, you see, the post-war baby boomers. So it had a huge kind of cultural effect, where if you appeared on top of the pops, chanting Hare Krishna, you were reaching half the nation. There was less choice in those days. And so it couldn't be repeated, in a sense, because now we've got so much information. Um, anyway, so we, um, you know, we grew. And for example, just in about twelve years of Prabhupada's mission, he opened 108 temples around the world. He made over five thousand disciples. He wrote over seventy books, from translations from Sanskrit and English translation, and then purports and commentaries. Opened farms, schools, even a scientific institute. So as you can imagine, it's pretty impressive. He passed away in 1977, but we, you know, we're growing as as a community and as a as a, an organisation. So today we have about 700 temples around the world.
0: That's good. Yeah. Um I was, I was actually, I was watching that. Um, they have this really good documentary, I'm sure, you've seen the about about the sort of Harry Krishna movement and about Prabhupada.
1: Okay, which documentary? There's a lot of documentaries. Well, there's a recent
0: one called Harry Krishna the movements
1: oh i think i've seen that one yeah
0: it's just about his sort of life and him traveling over in the oh that was spread. i think that was
1: released a few years ago yeah. and i think that was in celebration of our 50th anniversary since yeah. the international society was established obviously it goes way back before then but in terms of it being in the west we celebrated and i think one part of those celebrations included the making of the film
0: well when yeah. I, when i was watching the film one of the things i really felt was And I guess what I've been trying to do with this podcast and project recently is, is I, I, I watched that and I saw all these people in the 60s, especially at this time where they felt the world needed to change. They yeah, felt yeah, yeah. like there's, I don't know, the Vietnam War, there's, there's a sort of all these different things converging and all the young people saying, we, we don't accept status quo anymore we don't accept what we're being handed down we Ah. need a change and it feels to me very relevant to now to Mm. 2019 to this era where i feel we're it it's possibly just a continuation of that but it feels very much like we're in a place where we can no longer accept what the mainstream is giving us we we no longer know the future of the planet from an environmental point of view yeah, yeah, possibly yeah. for the first time ever that's mm-hmm. that's true and plus of economically like the roles of we have in society and
1: sorts. it's interesting you mention that because I was thinking that myself actually this morning um, the 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 thing the concerns that um, the youth had in the 60s in particular are more or less exactly the same as today yeah. but I mean obviously details are different but there seems to be more emphasis in, on the environmental side and therefore vegetarianism, whereas I guess in the 60s it was more about Cold War, CND, but it's roughly the same kind of network. The main difference is today is the role of technology, Twitter, Facebook and other and there's the, there's the older generations of today, like my dad's generation for example, he's now in his 70s, he was a teenager of the 60s. So what you have, you have a lot of support from politicians, whether it's the for, in form of the Green Party or, or any other party. Who, who so it's no longer like the youth versus the squares who are over 50, thirty, yeah. as it could have been in the uh, in the sixties. And in other words, the the age is the the democratic age is more spread out. So percentage wise, there's more people I think over forty than under forty today, whereas. Back after the Second World War, you had a huge baby boom and they all reached teenagers of the 60s and they were running the economy, actually, by just buying pop records. So that's different. Um, but the actual cause, and I think the general kind of broader support, moral support for the cause, I think is in, is, is more now. because, And also, it's more obvious that there's problems with the environment. Um, there's more... And, and it's interesting because for me, myself, I'm 49 now, so I'm almost middle aged, reluctantly so, but it looks like 49 is 49. Okay. And I see, see. on the news or hear about the, the latest movement, which is what do they call it Extinction, Extinction Rebellion. Rebellion. Okay, so that's like the latest wave. I mean, there's been yeah. many waves. This is the latest kind of incarnation, you yeah. say, of it. And it's roughly the same type of principle, you know, quite rebellious kind of anti-capitalist, wants to see the world in a different way, and that's fine. Um, but it's one wave after another, and you get to a certain age, like like my, where I am now, where you get the idea, but the title of what they call themselves is, is almost irrelevant. It's the same principle, Yeah. Um, the way I see it, and, and nothing really has changed since the 60s. The 60s is almost like a premonition of what capitalism could become. And I think it has to a large degree, although it's not completely bad, it has become destructive to the climate and to the environment through, you know, for example, the mass distribution of junk food, um, slaughterhouses, c- meat eating now proven to be uh, destructive to the environment. So there's more knowledge now. Um, however, capitalism is also strong, stronger than it was, I think, than in the sixties. But spiritually, so all the stakes, the polarisation is is actually become higher, I think. I mean, I've been speaking to people for
0: a few years now about their sort of mental health state. And a lot of people are miserable. A lot of people feel trapped in this material existence because there's they don't know another way, like that's yeah, the way that's it's presented.
1: The, yeah, to, to society, it's not, even, it's not even teaching them spirituality, it's not even in teaching them culture.
0: So I like to you think know. that they have... Um, a lot of the people I speak to and a lot of things I read, they're searching for answers in things like technology and things like, um, I, I, I don't know, like changing systems, which I think is a good thing, but I feel that a lot of the questions that we need to be asking. And possibly a lot of the answers were, are not being originated now. They are something that were written down 5,000 years, years ago, 10,000 years yeah. ago. Yeah. They've been passed down through generations. That, and I mean, one of the things a couple of years ago when I read the Bhagavad Gita it was like this is, this, this is incredible. This is sort of like a manual of how to step out
1: of, of that cycle, of exactly, exactly, and and, yeah. and
0: another one's like the Tao Te Ching, stuff like that. They're yeah, similar. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those spiritual texts, I think, have that. And while in my teens and twenties, I definitely rejected that completely, and was like, that you having a laugh, you having a laugh, anything, yeah. <laughs> that, nothing that old is relevant. That all this stuff is rubbish. And now I look back on my younger self, and I think.
1: What an idiot, you, were, you if I were well, thinking yeah. that. yeah, <laughs> I think
0: I was just part of a product of a system that I was in. And, and now I think, actually, I think that we could do a lot, achieve a lot by looking at some of this wisdom that we already have.
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that I, when I was actually, incidentally, about 20, I was at Salford University studying drama. And I, I was looking for something. Because you have to understand, late 80s, early 90s, there was also a bit of this kind of. Thing. It was the anti tax riots. It was the rebellion against Thatcherism, and and, yeah. and and the gr- beginning of the Green Party. So that, that was another wave, is another incarnation of this, roughly the same kind of prototype. And I was part of that. And I was I remember saying, and, and one of the the uh, university lecturers, you know, he himself probably a teenager of the sixties, said to me, he said, "Look, man, you know, drama teacher," he said, "It's not about." looking towards technology it's actually about looking about getting old things from the old where mankind has known for thousands of years and has tried and tested methods to get out this of this mess but with a new but present presented in a new way and that was a very important thing he said to me and that stayed with me as you know i was only about 20 at the time and i was quite impressionable but this guy actually had a point and what i mean is that it's, it's about the old ancient wisdom that has tried and tested over tens of thousands of years or whatever length of time you want to talk about. And it's not about anything new, but, the, but it needs to be presented in a new way. I'll tell you why, because um, it needs to be packaged in a new way. I would say it needs to be packaged differently today, even from as it was packaged in the 60s. But that's something for our own movement to, to look at. So oh, it's, it's been 50 years. Yeah. So, do we need to represent ourselves and say, okay, our, the message is the same, but is the audience different, and do the audience have um, a set, different set of um, priorities? What are they concerned about? And that's probably our challenge: is okay, we're only fifty years old in the West, but are we ourselves becoming the, you know, the the, the established, yeah. you know, deaf establishment, as it were? And I don't think that's the case. Um, we're probably a lot more mature and better in many ways, because what we're what we're presenting now, compared or say or say not presenting what we're kind of the way we are presenting ourselves or come across to the general public, is is less culty and is more. Um, I think people can really see we've got basically you know we've got something to say, and I think people really need us more as well. This type of and the fact that we may be a little bit off the beaten track, a little bit not mainstream enough. For some people, is actually an attractive quality. For most people, it's actually an attractive. Like here at Bachchan Tamana, we have thousands and thousands of visitors from the Hindi community for cultural reasons. Obviously, we get tens of thousands from Westerners, seekers, you know, um, diggers and dreamers, as they say. Um, we get many, many people, hundreds, if not thousands, as, as well. So that makes, and of course we've got the whole Beatles and George Harrison connection, we've got the estate, we have the, the, the farm, so it's all coming together for us quite nicely, but even in a smaller centres like in cities around Europe where we have a small preaching centre, or, uh, or a loft place even, I think, we're able, I think we're starting to strike a chord. But there's a challenge for us which is, Trying to, you know, extinction rebellion types or, you know, or woofers, worldwide voluntary organic farmers, those yeah. are are, tri- or vegans. These are the new, um, I suppose, what, sort of the, the newest wave, if you like, of, of, of potential sympathizers. That's the newest wave. And I think that we have to get on that wave. And, for example, issue of veganism. We're on the wave, but not, not as much as perhaps some people would like. Many of us are vegan, for example, but not all. It's not fundamental to our culture, veganism. Yeah. Because a lot of Indian food and sweets and, and cultural references and scriptures do refer to the milking uh, of cows and milk products. And we completely believe that cows should be looked after and allowed to live their full natural lifespan. Um, and we do our best to have, do that with our own cows. But the question is about congregational members or, or, or even senior members who may still have cow's milk yeah. um, from a, a non-himsa or, a non, you know, or maybe from an, an outside cow that at some point will be slaughtered you see which of course we're against but where do you get that balance you know um, can we satisfy the vegan community and we did quite well more work probably needs to be done and it's an ongoing process but when you have a congregation of tens of thousands of um, Hindu community of all ages. So, you know, the the older the ladies, you know, older ladies who are seventy, eighty years old all their life they've had a certain diet. Yep. And for them to say, Oh, you got you gotta become a vegan now I think might is gonna be difficult for us. I mean you
0: know, I have been a vegan for many years now oh, that's and I know good the, to know. the product the, nice the, one the, well done, yeah. <laughs> I just know the um, difficulties of I mean it's very hard to yeah cha- i mean change other people's
1: it's very hard to life, change other people's happens. because what it's it's to do with culture and lifestyle and yeah. it's that's why all these waves we were talking about these extension rebellion new age um or the, the swinging 60s whatever yeah. rebellion it, form it took um the i think what it is is that it's always the youth it's always people and you yeah. people get to a certain age they get set in their ways and they can't and they can't go further and I think for, when it comes to vegan issues, I think it's something that needs to be discussed and, and practiced actually within our younger members or those under a certain age. And I would fit, fit myself as someone who also should be a better vegan, I'm semi-vegan. I think that we need to, to work more with the vegan community as they do in some of our centres like in Scotland and Wales and here we we do our best. But I think one of the reasons why people stop rebelling, let's say, against mainstream society after a certain age, even Hare Krishna members, is because you come to an age, I think, where you you, know, you have you get married and you have children, or some of you do, you know, some of them, and then you realise you've got to go to school, you've got to get a job, you've got to pay the rent or the mortgage, you've just got to get on with it. And in order to do that, you have to start being practical. Um, there are some, if you go to places like Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco or even Atlanta or Glastonbury or, or in the UK you, know, you still see some of the old hippies um, you know, from the 60s um, but it's, I don't think that itself is a prototype for that's going to change the world I think that, um, but what's exciting I think about the, the anti-capitalist or the Extinction Rebellion um, wave is that I think there is some broader support because they have a real point, especially about um, global warming yeah. and these things. Um, and but uh, but uh, like I kind of indicated earlier, the actual answer is spiritual, because if everyone became at least vegetarian, started looking after the cows, you know, even many vegans as well. So it's all the same side of the same coin and the spiritual it became less um, materialistic as a society um, more prepared to live a bit more simply because no, polit- no one's going to vote unfortunately um, no one's going to vote for a politician that promises them less yeah That's whether it's whether time. it's just no matter which politician it is in which country even in russia or china or whatever um, no one's going to support someone who's going to collapse the whole system because the problem is if the system collapsed, then you know, we're talking about God knows what would happen. And, and so they've got to continue. The wheel has to gradually slow down. The capsules wheel, if you like, or the modern system, if you like, is going very, very fast. It's a big wheel. Yeah. And you may have one or two people um, you know, that's trying to throw spokes or spanners in, in there. But they may either spring come out or it may slow down the wheel a little bit but it's not going to take a few years, it takes decades I think and it's going to be a very gradual change and that's what I think we have to work for and that's also what you start to think as you get older, where you think okay yeah, unfortunately perhaps the world isn't going to change overnight and all I can do is change myself, I can't change the world, I can't change the Prime Minister or the President. you know, you become more realistic as you get older about what you can actually do as an individual.
0: And what do you think happens yeah. when you change yourself?
1: When you change yourself, you well, first of all, you can change yourself. That's one thing you can do, but you can't change other. Well, you can't you can't change the world overnight, but you can change yourself overnight, and therefore set an example to um, have that knock-on effect on others, like the domino effect, where you 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 um, do your best that you can, and and human society is such that people do tend to follow others' example. If you're nasty to everyone in a day then you're probably creating another hundred nasty people because they will just copy what they've experienced. You put everyone else in a bad mood for the rest of the day. So similarly if you're kind of really good to people then that will also have that effect. So we shouldn't underestimate our own influence um, but we should also be realistic about what we can do now. We can choose what we eat, we can choose how we live, we, we can do that, and as far as the big wheel that's turning, it will take time, but we are doing our bit to slow it all down, because I think we do have to slow down, because it can't logically, and Extinction Rebellion or even like the mainstream politicians, most of them, can see that something has to happen, but they're so caught up in it, they're part of the wheel, that they only really um, there's not much that really they can do, you see, yeah, because there's that fear I think of you know oh if they start doing certain things and changing things there's going to be mass unemployment or whatever or people would have to start moving out of the cities and farming again and how practical would that be, um, you know especially in England for example, and so I think that it has to be it's actually better if it is gradual yeah now the challenge is the challenge is this can it we afford to be gradual can we afford to to just sit back and let let things happen naturally and gradually when the 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 fate of the earth is seems to be more kind of yeah desperate this
0: is one of the points i was going to bring up is that i feel like that's a good point about the gradual change but if the things that we're hearing are true and they say within the next 10 years or something, we're past the point of, of no return. No return.
1: Um, yeah, and this, this is really what's fueling, I would say, you know, movements like the Extinction Rebellion, but others as well, not just yeah. them, but they're just a good example because it's, a, it's a topical. And they're basically saying, look, enough is enough. We've got to really try to throw some spanners in the works and really slow that, slow that wheel down now because we're coming up to the edge of a cliff. And we don't want to get, you know, we, the wheel has to kind of stop before that point. And, and that's absolutely right and um, I think that the youth will, will see that more than the, the older members because the older members have seen it all before and realised that things don't happen like that however we're living in very very exciting times in a sense and worrying times but also exciting times because now we have a situation where all generations have, have, have been aware of such issues do you know I me? Mean? My dad's generation now who's in his 70s he was probably part of the CND marches and, and so forth well, my mum was anyway. I don't know about my dad. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean by that? In other words, I think now is a very good time to really try and slow down the wheel. But I think that even then, it has. To, if you're driving a, a very fast car towards the edge of a cliff, even if you put on the brakes, still there's the process of there's still going to be a skid. You see, where the car can go over, flip over, or something. So it's somehow or other. We've all got to work together to kind of break keep breaking at a safe pace so that you know there's no kind of um, other type of economical disasters you know. and, 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 and and do what we can that's all we can do. Like electric flipping from petrol cars to electric cars is it, to me seems to be a good thing. But if we've got someone to turn up and say do without cars or to get, unfortunately it's not going to be realistic. Mm. One of the things that's really important, I think, is the structure of Vedic, or ancient Indian society, and how different it was to as it is today in the modern world, and that, Indians talk about that all the time, and even in, 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 a, in a relatively, say, 100 years ago, where they had Indian diaspora across Africa, Fiji, Mauritius, across India, Nepal, wherever, and to, compared with, let's say, living in London today, the, the, the contrast is huge where people, even today in of Africa and India, in some areas would uh, live, in a, live in a very much more kind of family network based society, much more localised kind of mentality where you have your local deity or your local shrine uh, and where you would have brahmanas or priests and particularly thousands of years ago you would have your priestly class that would be the most respected and they would be the heads of society, not the politicians. This is this is the point I'm, I really wanted to make. The idea, the idea of Vedic society, was that the the you know the the the, inter, the intelligentsia or the pious would actually be leading society, and that the politicians would be aspiring to be like that. So the politicians, the kings at the time, because it was before democracy, they would be setting the example or following the example of the brahmanas or the the pre, you know the the. the the renunciers. Yeah. and that the um the kings or the uh, we call it the the administrators and the politicians they would be um you know giving orders if you like or instructing the vices or the business class or the farming community and, and it would work like that um, whereas today what you have is a situation where it was that the politicians took over as the leaders that we all kind of try to or we hear about all the time in the news. They become the heads or the symbolic figures, if you like. But now it's the business people that have taken over the politicians. Even for example, in America where you have you know, you can't become a leader unless you're a good businessman. And we know what you know, what I mean, in other words, yes, it's a very good example. A very good example where the business has become the the, the top of society. Yeah. And politicians have to serve the businesses and the multinationals because they can't do much unless the businesses are happy. And the the clergy, if you like, for want of a better word, are at the bottom. And then there's the labor class or everybody else, you know, the general populace or or you know those that don't fit into the other categories, uh, who. Look, look follow the wrong examples they have got no no examples and, and the clergy or the priests or the those that are trying to give a spiritual message are basically left at the side however through technology through Instagram Facebook um, obviously the internet in general Twitter whatever there is access to spirituality and spiritual teachings you see so there's a polarization people are saying well okay this this, this is wrong and hang on there's all these different wisdom traditions of the east maybe they've got some answers you see yeah so i think there's going to be um not just us but hopefully we're very much part of it a a spiritual rejuvenation of society at some point i think there will be the polarization will cross over where perhaps the spiritual side will become the stronger
0: Thank you very much to Radha Mohan Das. It was really nice to be uh, welcomed into the back to Vedanta Manor. It's such a lovely place. So whatever your spiritual outlook or sort of non-spiritual outlook, however you experience life, I think um, it's such a nice and welcoming community, and it's this beautiful Moktuda Manor in just outside Watford that was donated, as he said, by George Harrison from The Beatles in the 70s. And it's just so welcoming and peaceful and interesting, inspirational, I think. So yeah, I, I think we could all learn a lot by going to these places which are outside the remit of our everyday lives and outside of the mainstream thinking. And I think it's these, these are important places, so it's a real honour and privilege to be able to go and talk to these people and spend time in these different places. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it'd be nice to hear, hear some feedback and um, thanks again. And I'd also just like to credit the underlying music at the beginning and in the intro and in this bit is done by my wonderful and talented friend Graham Walker. So uh, yeah, I was with him last week and we recorded this lovely, he recorded this lovely piano music for me to put underneath so thank you to Graham and uh, also I try and support myself quite badly but using uh, Patreon and uh, that's a place where if you appreciate these stories and these conversations then you can go and donate money to help me carry on doing them so that's patreon.com forward slash ministry of change I'll put some links there down below and you can also check out my website theministryofchange.org for more videos blogs content around mental health storytelling how to change yourself and the world and all these things and i look forward to seeing you back here for the next episode and once again apologies for the long break goodbye